I've been looking for you two. Now, just how did this fire start? It was an accident, Your Honor. I'm not the judge. I'm the fire inspector. I know. I was just practicing. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'm never getting to Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I got to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to The Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And today we have a hot button issue, a red hot topic. I thought you were going to say a burner of an episode. A burning question that we must address. (laughs) Amy, what is the trope we are about to discuss? My house is on fire. Yeah, yeah. Accidentally setting fire, burning down a house, a shop, an office, something like that. I feel like this happened a lot in the old-timey sitcoms. I feel like even beyond my specific recollections, just the idea of, like, sitcom characters walking around a sort of burnt-out, charry set, you know, where everything's been painted over with this black, charry crap is is a familiar sight uh in the 80s and 90s sitcoms so what's our lineup what are we watching we are watching webster season two episode five burnout family matters season two episode one rachel's place the drew carey show season nine episode 19 burning down the house and finally abbott elementary season two episode 15 fire now I've actually got an experience that I'm I'm kind of excited to share, but I'm going to ask you first. Do you have any experience with fire, something, you know, having been destroyed in a fire or somebody that you know having lost something in a fire? We should say off the bat, this is this is something that happens in real life and it's horrible. So, you know, we we don't want to make light of the fact that people people get killed, people lives are are destroyed in fires. It's a terrible thing. But, you know, <laughs> what can we do? We're talking about sitcoms. We're going to have a few chuckles. That's uh, absolutely. And I think so the short answer to your question is no, I don't have personal experience with fire or like adjacent personal experience with fire in this way. But I w- when we get to the Webster episode, I have an awful lot to say about how unprepared I was for that emotional journey. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of emotionally draining stuff going on here. I felt that way, too. I fortunately do not have the experience of having had a major fire that I endured, but I did have the experience of screwing around as a child with matches and burning things and stuff and not really knowing what I was doing. So in the early 90s, there was a band called the New Kids on the Block. Yeah, hanging tough. I hated them. And my friend Dennis and I would do this thing that we called New Kids Busting, where we would go around the mall and all the magazines and the bookstores and stuff that had the new kids on the front, we would put them at the back of the rack. We would hide the cassettes and stuff. It was very dumb. We were like 11 probably at the time. Somehow or another, I got a hold of this little pack of new kids on the block trading cards. And I just got it in my head one day. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to burn these things. 
So in my bedroom, my upstairs bedroom, I set these things on fire. Shaking my head at you, Jay. It was very dumb. And so, of course, you know, they, they burned for a few minutes. I put it out and it created this horrible smell. And so I hid <laughs> them somewhere. But the whole night, my dad was like, what the hell is that smell, that burning smell? And it was one of those things where at the very beginning of the situation, I made that call. I'm not going to tell him. I'm going to say, oh, gee, I don't know, expecting it to just go away in a few minutes. And he would go, oh, oh well, I guess I guess we'll never know. But instead, he kept looking like the whole night. And it was such a horrible experience. I never came clean. <gasps> I was, Your dad is going to hear about this for the first time listening to the pod? I, I, maybe I told him in the intervening years, but definitely back then, I never Never came clean. And yeah, it just less of a fire thing, but more of that, like, I will not tell a lie. Like to this day, that memory haunts me of like, that is why you tell the truth. You don't try to be sneaky or anything because these, wow. these situations that you think are going to go away on their own sometimes don't. So again, not the same thing, but watching these scenarios where Webster is secretly playing with fire uh, absolutely brought those memories back. This is like an origin story for you. What are the kids calling it now? A canon event. This is my canon event. <laughs> All right. So with that business out of the way, Webster, we've covered Webster before. We love this little scamp, even though he's kind of a knockoff of Gary Coleman. Yeah, but it's better. I don't know. The thing with Webster, I'm sure I made this remark the first time. Gary Coleman, in different strokes, had all the spunk, you know, and he's, yes. he's making these funny catchphrases and funny faces and stuff. Webster is just like, he's so little and fragile and helpless. And he's, he's so cute to the point that it's like when I would see a little chihuahua on the city streets and I would be like, get that thing out of here. It's too small and delicate. Somebody's going to step on it. Like, I just have that same feeling. You're like, very protective over Webster. Yeah, he just, he's not spunky in that way. He just seems like tiny and like, I, I don't want anyone to hurt his feelings. No. And, yeah, you know. All right. Well, look, I guess I should, I should qualify my Webster is better than different strokes with the statement that Webster and particularly this episode mm -hmm. was a huge part of my childhood. This episode aired in 1984, October 1984, which means I would have been like four years old. So this became a family show. Like this was a family show. This was in that era where we had the one TV in the living room and we watched yeah. TV together. We had a long family conversation about the importance of not playing with matches and playing with fire following this episode. Like it really impacted me as a little kid and I was unprepared because I've not watched it in any of the 40 years since. Right. <laughs> like I've not watched this episode and I was crying during this show multiple occasions. I got choked up just remembering parts of it and realizing that I'd misremembered other parts of it and then just watching the parents have this conversation with Webster and him try I'm like unprepared as yeah. I said for the emotional journey that I went on when I when I rewatched this and to me this just speaks to like exactly the reason that we talk about these shows right we're like what do they teach us what did we learn from them 
I learned not to play with matches because we had a family conversation that came out of my questions from watching this show. Yeah, I think you're hitting on two of the objectives of this this episode and two of the sort of subtropes. A, it is explicitly educational, right? It's it's not a coincidence or by chance that you guys, oh, let, let's have a conversation about fire safety. It's absolutely, this is a pedagogical aim of this episode is to teach about fire safety. You got to think this is a little bit before the rise of those quote unquote, very special episodes. We weren't constantly having, let's do one about AIDS. Let's do one about teen suicide no, but or whatever. They did have the after school specials in the seventies right. and stuff. So right. this to me kind of play, yeah. it's like a younger kids version of that. Yes, I'm saying we're just starting to get into that thing of like, Oh, how can we use these primetime sitcoms to start, yeah. you know, molding messages in, into to the youth of America. So you have that aspect of it. And then you have the other aspect of it that I think is even more emotional to me, which is that aspect of forgiveness and the idea of confronting, you know, when when somebody in your family, be it a child or anybody, does something with real consequences and they didn't mean it and it, it was not intentional or you know, or malicious in any way, but nonetheless, it happened. And how do you grapple with that and move past it? And that's really what a lot of this is about. Let's back up and just sort of lay out the basics here. It's pretty simple. I guess, ma'am, right? Webster's foster mom, part of her job is like bringing home products and like testing them or something, right? Like she's got all this stuff lying around the apartment, all these toys and games and stuff. And George, the husband, latches on to the chemistry set. He's like, oh, this was just like the chemistry set that I had when I was a kid. And he's getting Webster excited about like doing science experiments and stuff. And that's, you know, you can already kind of connect the dots here. Ma'am is going like, don't mess with the chemistry set. And I don't know, it all just kind of ends with like Webster takes this to his room with him. George is like, we'll play with this later, but not today. Right. So it's late. And like you said, George gets into the chemistry set. They start. He starts reminiscing about all the fun he had with a chemistry set when he was a kid. And then he realizes what time it is and is like, oh, okay, not tonight. We're not going to launch any rockets tonight. Well, we're going to do this tomorrow. Come on, it's late. It's time to get ready for bed. Well, Webster's not having any of that. He waits until their backs are turned and they're, you know, they are kind of like a um, Stephen and Elise Keaton kind of thing. They also have their like romantic storylines yes. going on too. So they're, you know, oh, want to play some checkers? Well, what if the board is my buddy? Yes, I was not prepared for that <laughs> out of ma'am. What if we play checkers and I'm the board? And I'm okay. the board. I don't even really know how that works, but, but okay. <laughs> So so they're like, ooh, and George follows her into the kitchen, and they're looking at the game and facing the other direction. Webster comes out, grabs the chemistry kit, takes it into his room, and attaches some type of rocket-looking thing to his teddy bear. Yeah. Because he's going to launch the teddy bear, and he's like, well, not tonight. You're not going to get launched. You're just going to orbit around the room tonight, you know, he says to his teddy bear. And he lights a match and lights the fuse, and then they're like, Webster, you know, he's like counting down or whatever, and so they're like, Webster, it's time for Yeah, they're calling from off camera from out in the hall or whatever. So he, you know, quick puts out the match, uses one of the test tubes to try to, like, stamp out the the fuse of the little rocket thing and then throws the whole thing in his closet and jumps into bed. So the next scene we wake up to 
is Webster in bed, like waking up and coughing because of smoke. And this is a scene I've remembered from childhood that he picks up his little glass of water and throws it on the fire to try to put it out. And it does nothing because the fire's too big. And then his parents are like, hey, or Mam and George are like, hey, turn the lights out, Webb. And he's like, I'm trying while he's like trying to put the fire out. Yeah, he's alone in his bedroom. He's woken up in the middle of the night because this this fire is in his closet. And yeah, they the parents don't realize it at first, but then they come in and it begins this like pretty exciting sequence. They start music, you know, it's the sort of cheesy generic action type music that you would put in a sitcom. There's a real fire. It's the kind of fire you would see like on the Universal Studios tour or something where they show you those pyrotechnics or you know. So yeah. it's 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 fake in the sense that it's controlled but it is real and it's you real see flames it's not like we get later on in family right. matters it's not cheesy where it's like... superimposed video effects exactly. it's yeah it's it's these three characters george mam and webster running around in this apartment set that is is a flame and it, you know as far as anything on on webster goes it's it's pretty exciting and yes. webster he needs to go back for his mementos. He's like, George, my mementos. I need my mementos. Oh, yeah. But before we get there, we got a scene that I kind of love, right? So each of them grabs something that's important to them, right? So Webster grabs his teddy bear. George grabs two trophies. And Ma'am grabs her cookbooks. And they go running out into the hallway. And they're banging on their neighbor's doors to get them to come out, which is where we get the thing that I definitely did not remember as a child because it blew right over my head which is this old fat balding man coming out with like two playboy bunnies on his arm then they're being like what's going on ooh, ooh, ooh. and then they shrug and go back inside their apartment yeah. and they're in negligees and i was like oh, oh this is a kid's show <laughs> okay yeah. Rare uh, sensual moment in Webster. Anyway, but yeah, so then in there in the hallway, like you said, Webster says, my mementos, it's my the pictures of my parents. I have to go back and get them. And George and ma'am are like, no, 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 we've got to, you know, get out of here and notify the neighbors. And Webster kind of breaks away from them and goes back into his room. And it is completely engulfed in flames at this point. And so then George goes back in to rescue Webster and Webster doesn't want to leave because he doesn't want his pictures pictures of his parents to burn, which is like the first kind of emotional moment that we get. And so George goes over and grabs a tin box and, of course, burns himself because it's really hot and then grabs it. And then they the next scene we have is they're in the assistant, um, Ma'am's assistant, yeah. apparently lives in the same building. He's basically like the one extrinsic character we always right. see. He's the family friend who's always showing up. Yeah, well, and he works with Ma'am. So they're over at his apartment. Apartment, and um, they're all just like sitting there. Yeah. Glassy-eyed. Can I just say, yeah, they're sitting there like catatonic and purely for the benefit of us, the audience, they're still covered in soot. Right. right. Nobody's ever said like, guys, do you want to take a shower? Do you want to clean up a little bit? They're sitting there with all the, you know, soot on their faces like they're, you know, a chimney sweep from Mary Poppins or something just so that we all get the sense of like they've been through hell. You know, in case you weren't watching for the first part of the show, their their house caught fire. And yeah, we get all of this. They're sort of like staring into space going like, all my stuff, my, you know, sort of listing all the possessions that that they've lost. We get Webster feeling terrible, but he he hasn't said anything yet. And we start to get this, this meditation on like, 
Yeah, your your material objects. Like it starts to to get you thinking about like what would it be like if you lost all your stuff? Yeah, if you lost everything. And and Webster in this moment is apologizing. And they're telling him, you know, it's not your fault, you don't have to. And you can see, and this is why, you know, the studios loved and these producers loved casting these older kids that looked younger because he's playing five or six. And he is able with all of his more, you know, older child emotions to really show us how distraught he is over the fact that he knows and conflicted he is that he did cause this, but he's not really ready. He doesn't know how to say it yet because he's little. Yeah. And then the fire inspector shows up. And he's just kind of telling them like, yeah, you know, all standard procedure. We're going to do a little investigation, you know, to, to see what caused the fire. Not a big deal. It's pro- I love how in every single one of these episodes, faulty wiring is always the prime suspect. There's always, and I guess that's true to life, but there's always a mention of faulty wiring or shoddy wiring. Right. Faulty wiring. So we'll ch- the fi- he says the fire started in the closet. There was a chemistry set in there, but we're going to check for faulty wiring. Yeah. And then George is like, after the fire inspector leaves, says to his wife, well, there's no wires in his closet. We know that. Right. Because they, but by the time the fire inspector shows up and, and is saying all this, Webster has left the room and then he comes back and he's doing like the tanners on the ALF episode. He's doing your sitcom eavesdropping where you're standing in the back of the room, listening to this whole conversation. Right. Nobody knows you're listening. So he knows now that they know he's, he's, hearing them discover that he is to blame and be angry with him and angry about it. Right. And they don't know that he knows that they know. So he takes off like unbeknownst to them. So when they go to confront him, like Webster, let's talk about the fact that you burned our house down. Well, he's not there. What they decide is they're going to go give him a chance to own up. Confess. Yeah. And he's not there. And then ma'am is like, I think I know where he is. And then they go up and we get, the thing we're going to see in all of these, which is kind of walking around the burnt out shell of their old apartment. Yeah. I began thinking maybe this is why they do these episodes so much. They have these, these sets, these burnt out sets. So like we need to use, you know, we haven't used the burnt out set in a couple of years. Let's have, uh, I don't know, golden girls burn down their house. We need somebody (laughs) to do something. Or do they create it? Because look, I like first thing I noticed in this episode, they have, my couch, like the couch yeah. that we had in our home, in our living room, that's their like family room couch. And that couch went with me to college because it was like the one that my, you know, my parents got new furniture in the living room. So I got a couch when I got an apartment when I was at college. But so I just, I was, I was flabbergasted and they had that same couch all ripped up and burned in the burned scene. Yeah, continuity, so it wasn't, of Yeah, it wasn't like they just were using a standard burnt out set. No, you know, of course. But still, I wonder if maybe they bring in a few key things to, to make sure. it specific to the like show. Like my couch. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, they, they, they're right. They find Webster there. I like that his confession is, you know, she asks him, do you have anything to tell us? Doesn't need to be complicated. Just say a few words, thinking he wants to say like, 
I did it, or it was my fault. And his confession is bears in space. <laughs> That's his three-word confession to let them know what happened. Well, I, it, and I don't think he was trying to let them know what happened, right? He was just sort of, he was trying to like give his excuse. Like he couldn't get out of his head that he wanted bears in space. And they were like, that's it. That's all you have to say. And then he, you know, comes. Yeah. Clean. He says, um, I thought they were safety matches. The box says safety matches. So right. I have to ask you, what are safety matches? Have you heard of this? I wonder if that's maybe just like a longer match that that like keeps you from burning yourself when you're using it or something. Or wait a minute, it's I, not I'm like a match like a that weird, won't burn things. No, I'm having like a weird memory. Didn't it used to be those strike anywhere matches? Like matches used to be strike anywhere, right? You could strike them on anything. You can still buy those kind of matches for camping and stuff. Mm. But then safety matches are the ones that only will ignite if you strike them on the strip. I bet that's what it is. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I had never heard of this before, but obviously it's a pretty flimsy excuse because self-evidently they're not that safe. Well, and it's funny too, because George doesn't have anything of it. And he's just like, don't you try to give me the runaround kid. Like he's like mad. And, and, and he, and Webster's like, I'm not, I really, I, I thought it would be okay. I thought I had it under control, you know? Yeah. Like we said, it's an emotionally exhausting scene and we get, Ma'am's fire origin story, which is patently insane. This was like a <laughs> sitcom writer dunked his head in absinthe or something before writing this. Like, well, it was like yours, though. You learned the lesson and kept your silence. That's Ma'am's just story. This, this reminded me of like Phoebe Cates and Gremlins going like, <laughs> my dad tried to sneak down the chimney as Santa Claus and broke his neck. Like one of those, like it's supposed really to be... dark story. Yeah, like... She goes, Webster, there once was a girl, and this little girl was in an elevator, and the elevator stopped, but there was a little gap between the door and the, the floor outside the elevator, and she was so curious what was down there, she couldn't quite see, so she lit a match. And dropped it down the elevator shaft. So she lit a match and it burnt her fingers. And yes, so she and dropped it. So she it. dropped it. But little did she know there was refuse. There was oily rags and cans and papers all at the bottom of the elevator shaft. <laughs> and it blew up like the 4th of July. Like, she's telling this thing that, like, for one thing, is a wild coincidence. Well, like, and then she's like, and, and, she's, and I've never told anyone that story before. Yeah. And it was like, and then she's sobbing and Webster's sobbing. And then all of a sudden, George is like, oh, maybe I can't come down so hard on Webster because my wife is also a little arsonist. Yeah, is also a pyromaniac, <laughs> pathological liar. Uh, so yeah, it's it's just, it's her way of saying like, don't sweat it, we all play with matches once in a while. No, it was her way of saying, hey, we all make mistakes. Of course. And the best thing to do when you make a mistake is, is talk about it because like she was explaining how she's been haunted all these years, just like you are with your not lying. I know. Like, she's been haunted all these years about keeping that secret. And and um and so Webster wants to keep his secret and not tell the fire chief. And that's the impetus for her to say, 
you, you know, don't you, you know, don't you want other kids to learn from this mistake so that other families don't have to go through this? You know, if I had told my story, maybe we other families would have learned and we wouldn't have to go like this. Go yes. This. Yes, I agree. I'm just saying my note for the screenwriter would be it doesn't have to be a total one to one. Maybe Dial she it back a bit. <laughs> yeah, like maybe she made a different kind of mistake that had a consequence. Maybe she left the door open and the cat got out or something. Like it doesn't need to be I also did something specifically with matches causing a fire when I was exactly your age. Man, it hit the right notes though. In terms yes, it was a little over the top, but in terms of like really driving that point home because this was a scary episode oh yeah like, and it's if really you're a well kid, acted it was really i mean it's like these two we talked about this the last time we talked about webster these two are you know trained one of them went to rada they're like super right. highly well, the other trained one is a actors. professional football player yeah but then went and did all this crazy training right like they you know or maybe it was just maybe it was just her i don't remember but anyway what she is this like highly qualified very you know well-trained actor and and it it really did take you through all the beats of like, not necessarily the devastation of losing everything. Cause that is hard to empathize with unless you've ever actually had that happen. But the feeling of hiding something, of being at fault for something, of not wanting to tell the truth because you know you did something wrong, but then having to tell the truth and grappling with that, like, like it hit all those beats. And I'm like, no joke. I was crying. Like yes. you had to blow my nose and cry. It was that it was that emotional. No, I felt that way too when he says, uh, of course we love you. We sure don't love what you did, but that doesn't change anything. You know, it's that same thing. And yeah, it's like we keep saying, it's just like those times when you have to wrestle with, you can't say, oh no problem, don't worry about it. You know, it is a significant thing that the person has done. But you still have to move past it because they didn't mean to do it. And yeah, it's just, it's one of life's challenges. Yeah. Great episode. Oh my gosh, I'm so glad we got to watch this one. Yeah. So, all right, let's pick up the pieces and move on to Family Matters. Family Matters, season two, episode one. This is the season premiere of our second season called Rachel's Place. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of big changes and happenings in the series here, but I want to just throw out a random observation right off the bat. We mentioned a few episodes back in our theme songs thing, how the Family Matters, Full House, all those Miller Boyette songs and stuff are kind of interchangeable. Yeah. And I was just paying attention this time and it struck me the way the Full House one starts, whatever happened to predictability, the milkman, the paperboy, and evening TV. Right? This one starts with... How does this one start? Um, it's a rare condition... There it is. ...this day and age to read any good news on the newspaper page. What's sung, the obsession with newspapers? Sung by Joe Cocker, by the way, so not I'm Jay. I'm thinking Randy Newman. I'm thinking it's a wannabe Randy Newman. And it's always newspapers. That is my point. In, in all of the shows, it's like, hey, hey, all you old people that, that want it to be like the old days again, let's just talk about newspapers. And that's going to make everybody feel kind of like nostalgic and comfortable. I and mean, we've read newspapers in the 90s still. 
I guess, but <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That 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 was my random thought that they're always talking about newspapers at the very beginning of these songs to kind of set the mood. Set the tone. And Perfect Strangers, they work at a newspaper. There you go. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> so, so we're back at Family Matters. They're they're coming back from the supermarket and it's like they're talking about financial troubles right carl harriet rachel there's a joke about uh he he they get mad when he pays for the groceries with a check which was a little time capsule from the 90s right and then ask them not to cash it for two months yeah but so you know i guess it's like rachel the sister right harriet's sister who's the aunt who lives with them she has a little kid of her own she she's basically like a, a moocher, right? She's an aspiring writer, so she doesn't have a steady income. So there's this dynamic where she's like, guys, I, I really want to, you know, I, I just wish I had a way to kind of support myself and pay my way. And Harriet's like, no, don't worry about it. And Carl keeps going like, oh, I don't know. I think she's got a point there. And that's sort of like the vibe that that's sort of like the vibe that's kind of sitting across the beginning of the episode. Right. And Carl's point is, you know, there's, or no, it was Harriet's point. She's like, look, there's eight people in this house. Like, it's going to be a little expensive sometimes. Right. But, Not to mention Urkel's always here. Right. But we, you know, and Harriet's thought is we'll just work some extra shifts and it'll be fine. And then we get an iconic entrance from Laura. It was awesome. She comes running in and she's like, I got a job. I got a job. And then she busts out into that amazing like late 80s early 90s song i want to be rich do, 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 yep. do, do, do. and she like gets down i was like i wanted to rewind it and watch it again it was she was having a great time singing that song well that's another pattern i've noticed with family matters the first time we talked about them it began that's with the right. every little step you take by bobby brown video yep. on the tv like the actual footage there was a mention of Janet Jackson in that same episode. Yeah. I feel like there was something about that in the other one we watched. I don't know if it's trying to connect with the youth culture. I don't know if it's corporate synergy because they're tied together with a record label, but they're always talking about the current music. They're yeah. always singing those songs, mentioning those artists. It's a thing. Yeah, well, it was, I mean, it made Laura seem very cool. Again, I had another like visceral reaction to this because I was like, oh my gosh, I remember that song. I remember getting down in my house to that song. Like, yeah. And I just like immediately connected with Laura and was like yep that's my kind of girl like yep. we're the same so she's got a job at Leroy's which is like a local diner as does Steve Urkel so he comes in right after you know I've got a job too now I just want to pose this question this is not a new thing I'm sure there's been lots of discussion about this is the Urkel Laura dynamic at this point problematic you know and i don't mean at this point in the show i no, mean at I mean, this, at this point, point in, in culture time, looking because back he's always it. trying to get kisses and she's this, always telling him to go away so this is season two they're still little they're like 14 yeah they're like early high school age but to me they still they, they come across as as little like he's old enough to be like to have a crush on her but there's a certain cuteness obviously they keep going they keep aging this dynamic does not abate i guess he eventually meets Myra or Moira or something, and he kind of has his own girlfriend later in the series. But look, I, I'm, I'm wrestling with this because I don't want to be the guy that's taking everything too seriously and going like, oh, we need to talk about how Steve Urkel didn't respect Laura's boundary. You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to be that person that ruins the fun of everything. And I will say, unrequited love is a 
comedic staple, right? right. Pepe Le Pew, all that stuff, you well, know? Well, Pepe, don't put them in the same category. <laughs> Pepe Le Pew is a rapist. Yeah, he, I guess he's been canceled. <laughs> Uh, but but whatever that dynamic, you know, it's it's we know it, we love it. At least we thought we did, and so I just wonder about that. Looking at it now, is like there there was a, a piece in the AV Club years ago when the when Brooklyn Nine Nine was popular, and for a while they had the same dynamic with Joe Latulio's character Boyle and Stephanie Beatrice's character. He always had a crush on her, and he wouldn't take no for an answer, but he was kind of cute and nerdy, so it's kind of harmless and fun. And this article was saying, like, let's stop doing that. It's not funny anymore. And because of that, or or who knows why, you know, a season or two later, Stephanie Beatrice's character came out as gay or bi, and they kind of phased out the whole thing. So I'm just curious, what do you think about this? Is, is this like, do we still need this? What do we, what do we think? So... I think that it's not something that you could write in in the same form today, right? So like if you picked up this show, plopped it down today, and these were all current modern people, it wouldn't, the, the same dynamic wouldn't work, right? The reason I feel like it worked back then was that Laura suffered no fools, right? Like she yeah. didn't have the time of day for it. And there was no, there was never that imbalance of like, he's a bigger dude. He, this could get aggressive. No, like he it is was low always, exactly. And not just like low status, but like she is physically bigger than him. Yes. As the years went on and he got to be physically bigger than her, that's when you saw the dynamic change. And while, yes, he was still like, hey, I want to date. Hey, I want to date. They did more like leaning on the him changing into a different character kind of thing. And they did more stuff. I think for that reason, like when it crosses the line from little kids being like little kids and the like girl being like, I don't have time for this. You're an idiot. I'm going to, you know, punch you and it'll hurt you. Once it moves from the actual physicality of the people into something different, that's, I think, when it changes. Yeah, I mean, but I think you're right. I think today with them as little, you could have, you know, I wonder if Modern Family had any of this stuff. Yeah, I think watching it now, this one in particular, for whatever reason, more than the other one we watched, I'm just going like, yeah, she doesn't seem uncomfortable by it. She's fine. But I'm just like... How many times does she have to tell this guy no? Like, it, it just, it made me annoyed on her behalf. But I'm just like, <laughs> dude, like, leave her alone. Stop yeah. bothering her. Well, and I used to think that when we watched, like, when I watched the show as a kid, I used to be like, why are the parents thinking that this is okay? Like, why yeah. aren't the parents getting involved? And, at, you know, I get it. Like, we were all suspending disbelief and whatever. But that is the, like, the to me, the big takeaway is that, Back even back in the '90s, when when this show was super popular, the parents would be okay with that going on for as long as it did. Yeah, and again, you just have to accept that. Like, well, he's annoying, and they're not okay with it necessarily. They're always annoyed by him, but it's just kind of like he's Urkel. You know what yeah. can you do? He's he's the most popular character on the show. We just we gotta <laughs> live with him. Gotta lean into it sometimes, I guess. So. Urkel and Laura have jobs at Leroy's. We move over and get a taste of what that's like. We get the Leroy set. We get Leroy himself. The man is built like a house, yeah. right? This guy makes Carl Winslow look like Urkel in comparison yeah, to this Yeah, Carl guy. Winslow looks tiny in comparison. This man is as broad and like twice as tall. I mean, he's a, he's a big dude. And his name, the actor who played him, his name is John Hancock, which is like made it even funnier. Um, 
Um, so anyway, so he runs this burger joint. He's hired both of these kids. They are, you know, they're doing their thing. The family comes in. Urkel does his Urkel thing. Yeah, well, he's super clumsy. He's always breaking things. So we get the first did I do that in this episode when he, you know, I think he's carrying like six plates. So one of them is in his mouth. So when he says hi to the family, he drops it or whatever. But yeah, he breaks so many things that I thought it was a genuinely funny moment, which doesn't happen that often in Family Matters, when the boss gives Laura her paycheck and he gives Steve a bill because he owes money to the joint. Because he's broken stuff. so many dishes. And then the and then Leroy leaves. He's yeah, they're like, closing for the day. They're closing for the day, but he's going to leave the two 14-year-olds there to clean up by themselves. Yeah, which I, I actually think, insofar as I could buy that they have the job in the first place... I could believe that. Like, I worked at, at restaurants and stuff, and, like, you you would leave your, your you know, grunts to do the grunt work. Like, <laughs> Well, so Steve turns on the grill and starts a grease fire. Yeah, well, I do want to mention, I'm always on about the live studio audience versus the fake canned laughter or whatever. I don't know if you caught it when, you know, Steve and Laura are cleaning up, and Steve goes, oh, I have an idea. I'm, I'm going to cook. I'm going to cook you something for dinner. And as he's leaving the And the lady the set, goes, oh, no. Yeah, you hear an audible, uh-oh, come <laughs> from the crowd. And uh, that, that is like my life's blood. To hear actual <laughs> words being spoken by the live studio audience and they keep it in. Like, it just, yeah, it's like I keep saying it. Just that, that element of vaudeville and theater yeah. in these old sitcoms. Like, that's, that's it, you know? Yep. So then the next scene we get is they're sitting on the curb outside, all covered in yes. soot. Well, this this is a, a joke cut, basically. This is like for the purpose of humor, they're skipping over the entire process of the fire being set. They're having Steve go like, Laura, I want to cook you dinner, you know, goes to the kitchen, smash cut exterior the building's burning down right and uh, so the building's on fire they're sitting on the curb we get some real fun shots of both harriet and carl like making their way to this scene so harriet for some reason is like in the street and there's all these white people running by and she's like what's going on and this guy's like did you hear leroy's is burning down she like pauses for a second and then goes laura and starts running through the street and then the camera is like zoomed in on her kids as she's running down the street it's like the weirdest i'm like why why are it is it's like we talked about with the Pee Wee Herman episodes. It's like when you get sitcom directors and crews having to do action. They're just like, uh, okay, okay, like I'll do my best, but this, this camera really doesn't move. Dynamic shot of this lady's kids running on some yeah. asphalt. And then we get Carl Winslow doing like a diehard shout out where he like pulls up in his car, in his police car, jumps out, runs a few steps right into just sort of the left of the frame in the camera and stares up at the fire. And then we get the shot of the building on fire yeah, again. We get some horrible video toaster graphics where, uh, yeah, there's an exterior of the building with some crappy fire sort of, you know, digitally painted in or whatever. Steve, and th- this is the reason why we covered this one. We were trying to narrow down the episodes. I was like, look, if there's a Family Matters episode with a fire, we are going to get like one of the biggest did I do that of Steve <laughs> Urkel's career. 
And I was not wrong. He's, he's on the ground, like on the pavement. You know, there's a whole crowd surrounding him. He kind of wakes up for a moment. He has an oxygen mask on. Yeah, yeah. He looks up at the building, sees that it's burnt down, goes, did I do that? And like the entire crowd of like 30 people just nods in unison. Yes. So Steve gets to give like the mother of all, did I do that? And then <laughs> we get... Our interior, bombed out, you know, charcoal-covered set, just like on Webster. We have Leroy come in, and unlike Webster, we have the acknowledgement of the concept of insurance, yeah. right? This was something that never came up in Webster. It's just like, nope, you know, tough luck, your, your house burned down, sorry. At least with this guy, even though I feel like the show really kind of does him dirty the way it sort of discards him. But nonetheless, this guy says... I'm not restarting this place. I'm too old for that. I'm taking the insurance money. I'm going to, you know. He goes, I'm taking the insurance money and maybe my wife and I'm going to Florida. Yeah. There's also a funny moment where when he realizes that Steve Urkel is to blame, he charges towards him to like beat him up and they have Reginald Val Johnson restrain him from behind. And like we said, you know, this would be like if a three-year-old child tried to restrain me from beating somebody up from behind. <laughs> he like, was it holding cannot his, be done. He was holding his waistband. Yeah, like, it, it's not going to happen. If this guy wants to beat up Steve Urkel, he's going he's to He's going to get him. He's huge. Regardless, he goes, like, I'm out of here. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm taking the loss. I'm not going to start up this place again. So it's kind of like, that's that. And we shift to the sort of second half of the story, right, which is, Rachel's proposal. Right. So we we come back to the house, you know, Steve and Laura have all have both lost their jobs. And yeah, and so we're back at the house. And now Steve and Aunt Rachel are putting on a presentation for Harriet and Carl to say that let's let's buy the place she's got a business idea yeah and i have to say i was on the edge of my seat for this they have like old school madman style they have like an easel with a sheet over it you right. know like they're going to unveil this this presentation so rachel does the talking first and she says like look here's my idea. I want to buy the restaurant. I want to run it. You know, I've talked to the bank and they will give me a loan if I can give a 20% down payment. I have some of that because of my payout from my late husband. And so I'm going to need you guys to lend me the money, right? But what I was so curious about is that Steve Urkel is here, right? For some reason. Right. It was his idea. Yeah. And so when they're like, I don't know about this isn't it risky to open a restaurant? And she's like, take it away, Steve. And so I'm just so curious, is this going to be a moment of competence for Steve Urkel? Is this going to be like those times in the office when we get to see why Michael Scott actually got to be the manager? Because despite all of his idiocies and idiosyncrasies, he's actually kind of a competent salesman in certain ways. So I was so curious, like, is is Steve Urkel going to actually say something articulate that makes sense? Or is this going to just be a dumb joke. And I think the answer is mostly the former, even though it's a little simple and kind of dumbed down. But Steve Urkel says, I ran this by my uncle. He's an accountant. He's the best CPA in town. And we've figured this out. And it's a surefire success. And he tries Within to... Within a year. Right. And he tries to frame it in a way that's like a little bit more complicated. But basically, it's population growth 
relative to the proliferation of restaurants that sell meat, right? So in other words, the population of the neighborhood is increasing and there's not that many restaurants that sell meat. So again, it's not like some sort of like Newtonian elaborate scientific breakdown, but what he says sounds pretty solid. Right. Basically, there's a market for, yes. we lost a burger joint, so there's a market for a replacement that will also have burgers. Yeah. I mean, if this place was doing well before it burned down, then it stands to reason that it'll continue to do well. And it is the local hangout for yes. all the kids. Yes. It's basically the max. Right. And so we get, <laughs> I don't know what, a, a 10, 20 second montage that takes us to... Rachel's place exists is a fully functional diner. I don't know. Like, why couldn't this have been the entire arc of this season? You know, opening this restaurant. Like, they just, they breeze over it so fast. And it's just like, here it is, everybody. It doesn't even take a commercial break to to build this restaurant and open it. Yeah. Well, so number one, I think the reason that they're doing it in this way is because all of the ideas for their storylines that they have in this season have to do with Laura or Laura and Urkel working at the restaurant. So they are doing the thing that Boy Meets World did a few, when we did our back to school episode, they're trying to age up the cast. Sure. Right. So they get jobs at 14, you know, Harriet's got to sign a work permit so that Laura is allowed to get the job. And now she's going to be hanging out in like the high school kid hangout place and interacting with Eddie and his older friends a little bit more. It's going to be more, focused on the kids this is also the very first appearance of little richie this is the beginning of the first episode of season two so we had infant richie in all of season one and now richie is four almost five years old now he looks like lionel richie yes he does look a little bit like a baby lionel richie um so that and this is also kind of the beginning of the end for the other daughter yeah unfortunately yeah that's that's true they didn't have much to do with her it's funny that it's always the young daughter in boy meets world in everybody loves raymond it's always the young daughter that they're like can you just not exist we just don't really have ideas for you you. (laughs) but yeah i think you're exactly right they wanted like arnold's from happy days like the max they wanted a teen hangout they wanted to get out of the living room yeah and uh yeah it all makes sense i'm just saying You know, I know we don't come to Family Matters for realism. They could have had, you know, a several episode arc of having all of this happen instead of having a weird CGI transition. And it's like, here we are, Rachel's place. Get ready for episode two. (laughs) Yeah. So we got the same, the exterior shot that we had where the fake fire had been put on earlier. They got rid of the fake fire. They brightened up the sky and they took the Leroy sign and they put on a Rachel's place sign that. It was spinning yeah, and it was cheesy so, 3d model yes it was so obviously like bad cgi yeah but in terms of tracking the trope we get in some ways a similar scenario but it's so funny how the emotional approach to it is completely different in yeah. this one it's like Ultimately, Urkel did us a favor by burning down this place. Like, everybody except Leroy is sitting pretty now. Yeah, so the last one we had fire as a lesson, and in this one we have fire as an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Basically, if you're in a rut, 
Consider burning down a diner. No, do not do that. We are not advocating for <laughs> no, insurance we are fraud. Not. That's that's what family matters is. And it's not even insurance fraud. It's more like early retirement for one guy and career opportunity for a gal. There you so, go. Uh, yeah. All right. Moving on to the Drew Carey Show. God help us. Drew Carey Show, season nine, episode 19, Burning Down the House. Yeah, so congratulations for reaching nine seasons, Drew Carey Show. That's a pretty long life. I remember Drew Carey showing up, like, in the cultural world and thinking, like, oh, he's, like, kind of a funny guy or whatever. Uh, This was, you know, like a lot of these more recent shows. It was after, you know, we were watching a ton of TV, I feel like. So I don't think I was ever, like, a regular watcher of this yeah i was really surprised to see that this show started in 1995 wow me too when i I was like whoa okay i mean i guess that that stands to reason why i've seen some of it but why i think of it as a show i didn't watch because it ran from 95 to 2004 and i definitely did not watch it after the first couple of years and even in the first couple of years it was only kind of here and there yeah and even the styles frankly like drew carey's glasses now granted we're watching one of the later ones but the glasses that we all picture drew carey wearing that's an early 2000s style that wasn't how people dressed in the 90s when you look at these sets like i was noticing the deep blue in the living room walls you know that's what i'm always talking about with the newer shows those nice colorful interiors not the beige crap that we had in the 80s you know and even the 90s and so yeah there's a lot of this that just says to me early 2000s well and this is this is the last season it's toward it's kind of like middle to the end of the last season so in this this is season nine some of the like main cast members have you know after nine years you've had a lot of turnover and stuff like that the main girl who was like in their group friend group and then also was kind of like an on and off person with Drew Carey as like a love interest she's gone now and we have this other woman who has been like she was featured as a waitress multiple times and then kind of graduated into series regular and so we have this new girlfriend that's like the relationship is just kind of starting at this point and it is a hundred percent that awful early 2000s dynamic of like schlubby dude who has a super hot wife and and like could care less about wanting to like be a good boyfriend or partner to her it's so frustrating yeah it's a very weird dynamic that we're dropping into you got to realize not only is this season nine it's episode 19 so like yeah we're walking into something that i don't totally understand No, and it's and it's nearly over right so like the viewership dropped off the last four seasons a lot people just were not watching shows like this really anymore in the early 2000s and specifically they just weren't into this show it was just kind of hanging on as like you know well some what these i shows was... tend to do and it's not good <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna dump on this show and uh sorry if you liked it <laughs> let's just back up a second what is this show like is it that's a good question because it doesn't know who it is anymore yeah it's one of those and look it's fine you got to remember if you say this started in 95 this is a few years after seinfeld so it's like okay it's it's enough to have a guy that's a funny 
guy and we'll make a sitcom about his life. We'll right. give him a few friends. We'll give him a workplace. But there was something about Seinfeld that was so stripped down that it was like, we we get it. It's it's him. It's these three people in his periphery, and everything revolves around that. And with this one, there was yeah, something. This is like King of Queens. This is, but um, it's also like Office play off. Not not the Office, but it's also like workplace stuff. Right. Yeah, like, exactly. It's King of Queens. It's ha- it's everybody loves Raymond. If we didn't have the family, we had a single guy, and so we were at his work all the time and the bar where he hangs out. Like, that is what this show kind of was. And it was trying to be, I think, at first, more of the ensemble comedy, like, just shoot me. Yeah. Like it was, Or even Frasier. Yeah, it was trying to be more... I mean, but even Frasier, you had a mix of the both. Like, That's early true. on in Drew Carey, in the Drew Carey show, I remember this, like, in the same way that I remember Just Shoot Me. It was an office... Mostly work. Yeah, and it was all about that funny dynamic between Mimi, the woman who wears all the big makeup, and Drew, and they had, you know... You can watch a compilation of their zingers, and it's great. Like, that was a really fun dynamic. And then, you know, as time goes on with these shows, as what always happens, they just they maybe get they find their groove at a certain point and then they just don't get any better. But so, yeah, I mean, at this point, we're half in Drew's home. Yeah. And most of this episode isn't even taking place in the office anymore. It's taking place at the house with him and his hot girlfriend who they just started dating, but she's already basically living with him. Yeah, it's weird. They talk about how they haven't slept together yet. Well, because they're friends, and they only just started dating in the, like, second episode or something of this season. Yeah, and like you said, earlier. it's a pretty big red flag, I would think, if, like, you haven't even, you know, uh, consummated your relationship, and you're having a hard time getting your boyfriend to, like, upgrade your dinner date experience to like anything but hanging out at the bar where you work yeah Yeah. no so the and look this uh, this episode set a shitty tone for me from jump because the very first scene is this girl who's like oh isn't it so nice that we're you know we're finally boyfriend girlfriend so where are you gonna take me on our first real date and he's like uh beers and so then we spend the whole rest of the episode just like her begging to go on a date and he, at, in that first scene, is telling her, like, that's fine. If it's something that you want, like, I'll do it. Where do you want to go? And she's like, I want you to, like, want to take me on a date. Yeah. And he just, like, does not understand. It does not compute with him. And he just keeps sort of ignoring her. And then in every scene later on, he's like, oh, yeah, that's right. You wanted to go on a date. Like, it just, like, the ire that builds up inside me when I see this shit, it makes me want to go back and watch, you know, Kevin can fuck himself again and get all all the happiness of murdering these horrible sitcom husbands. Yeah, it's weird because with Drew Carey, the flavor is not like Al Bundy or some of these more negative shows. Like he has this very affable sort of gentle way about him. Yeah, but- he's supposed to be the one that we are on his side and yeah. he's a total dick. We talk about these these types of shows and how much I hate them. We've talked about it many times on the podcast, right? Well, so, but he makes the character and the writing makes the character of the girlfriend 
less than. It is total misogyny written into jokey form where we're supposed to just be like, yeah, it doesn't matter. These girls don't matter. And it is so frustrating because even with the like, Drew Carey's a nice guy and oh, it's just this and oh, we just that. That's insidious, shitty misogyny that we're allowing to wash over families who are watching these things at home. It's bad writing. It's bad art. It's bad messaging. It's bad everything. Yeah, no, I kind of agree. My point in bringing up why he's affable and, uh, you know, gentle like that is because it gives it a different feel. And so you're not experiencing it as negativity can be funny or isn't it funny how how mean we are like it is more of just like oh these these are the challenges that that us guys have to deal with yeah. is like sometimes be your girlfriend, nice to your girlfriend yeah and to me anyway it's more of just like what are you doing like he he doesn't acknowledge the the opportunity he's being presented, you know, in terms of this this woman that is like much more attractive than he is, whatever. I, I think I think we've made our opinions known. <laughs> anyway, so that put a sour taste in my mouth from Jump because I was like, really? I remembered kind of, you know, thinking the Office com like the like the you know Office sitcom stuff that they did earlier on in this in the series was kind of funny. I was not expecting to be dropped back into one of these. Like I actively avoid King of Queens for this reason. Ah, yeah, but that's not really the main story here, although it, it is, you know, a pretty significant part of it. What we're really concerned with, I guess, is that what Drew gave a, a birthday present to Mimi's son. Right. So at this point in the series, Mimi has married Drew's brother who dresses up in women's clothing and they have this whole like she's a little ostentatious, he's a little ostentatious kind of thing going on. And they have a son named Gus and Gus is having a birthday. So everybody in the cast, a bunch of the people from the cast are all going over to Mimi's house for this birthday party. And Mimi's got this story about why Steve, Drew's brother isn't there he's off he he's he's up for some job he needed to go to some out-of-town training for it and he didn't want to tell drew and anybody else in case he doesn't get the job so they're at the birthday party and drew has dug out of the attic his old wood burning kit that he used to use when he was a kid to make those like the pictures that you can do where you kind of just char the wood a little bit and so that is the kind of seed of the episode that follows in through our trope, which is burning down houses. Yeah. So it doesn't get a ton of screen time. I mean, the actual fire happens off camera in this one, right? right? We basically find out her house burned down because of this wood burning fire thing. And right. so it's another one of the it's a plot point. It is not a, you know, epic event the way it was in Webster. Uh, it results in Mimi and her son living in a warehouse, which is kind of good from their point of view, at least from the son, because he gets to play video games on this big TV and stuff. Right. So this is all really a construct to handle the fact that 
the actor who's played Steve, Drew's brother, is also... Everybody's leaving the show because this is the end of the series. And so this is a way to kind of get him off because he's not going to be in any more episodes. And so we find out midway through the episode that the story that Mimi has concocted is fake because actually what's happened is that Steve has left her. And so she's telling Drew the next day at work that, you know, Steve got the job and everything's going great and he had to go out to his new sales territory. And so he's going to just put them up in a hotel for a few weeks until the insurance check comes through. And she's saying it's like the fanciest hotel in town or whatever. Well, so then Drew hears this message from his brother that's like, oh, well, I guess by now Mimi's told you that I've left her. And so he realizes something is amiss and goes to they, you know, they work for this retail company that at the beginning of the show was a department store and now is an online e-tail type company because we moved from 95 to 2004 and so he goes to the warehouse thinking he'll find them there and sure enough they're there and he's like look you guys need to move in with me and so that's the construct then for the rest of the series yeah he has a funny line because for me there were not a lot of lol moments in this but he says uh he says, you can't live in a warehouse forever. They have one President's Day sale and you're screwed. You know, so I thought that was kind of funny. But yeah, it seems to me like, you know, and again, I, I wasn't really a watcher of this show, but the main function of this ultimately, again, addressing the absence of the character, like you said, but also sort of softening this relationship. You know, you're saying these two were at each other's throats. She has this sort of stubborn pride, tough you know, way about her, she would rather make up a story about staying in a nice hotel than come clean about her circumstances. So this whole thing is sort of a way of having them, you know, when they talk to each other and they're being positive or helpful, they kind of don't look at each other. They both have this sort of bashful way about him, about them. And it's the way, this way of sort of bringing them together and having him go like, look, you know, uh, I guess I shouldn't have given you the wood burning thing. I guess it's kind of my fault. And her going like, well, I, I guess it would be nice to stay in a house instead of a warehouse and sort of like swallowing their pride, basically. Right. And now we've set up this dynamic that'll play out over the next few episodes anyway of them having to live in the same house and all of that stuff that used to happen in the office. Now they're transferring it to the house. So, you know, just trying anything they can at this point to just like throw in spaghetti at the wall to see what will stick. Like, how do we get more of Drew and Mimi interacting in a space that's a little bit different than the same office space we've had them there for nine years? Yeah, it's a change of scenery. And it's also just like when a company starts to go under and you go, oh, let's move to a smaller space. Like, uh, you know, we don't have have cast members to fill up this big office anymore. So let's just have these two in the living room. You know, let's make them like the odd couple. Right. The other thing I wanted to make note of in this show just production wise is there's an interesting approach there's a lot of like steady cam i noticed even though it seems to be filmed before a live audience it almost has the feel of a sorkin show you know these turn of the century sorkin shows aaron sorkin the writer loved to do these steady cam things because they would do the walk and talks right and so even on sports night that did seem to have an audience at least for some of it I guess you would have to imagine if you were sitting in the audience at these shows, there would be a guy with this big Steadicam rig standing like two or three feet away from the actors and kind of following them around and gliding throughout the set and stuff. 
So I noticed about this because of when it's made, because it's sort of like these multicam sitcoms are sort of dinosaurs at this point. We need to be adapting. And so it's one of those hybrids where we're still filming it like the old multicams, but we're getting this new, more cinematic camera work. Yes, you picked up on something that is, like it's it, it's a whole paragraph on the Wikipedia page about mm. the way the tone shifted in season nine. Not only did season nine air all sort of out of order because of, you know, it ended up like getting part of the season was cut off and then things came back in the summer and it was finished up there. And so like a bunch of different storylines got all jumbled because it didn't air in the order that it was supposed to air in. But yeah, they started, the director started experimenting with the single camera and the one camera setups, like you're saying. And the set was completely rebuilt as well. So it had, there were four walls in most of the rooms. So they could do the single camera thing of like going kind of all around the room. It wasn't, and, and the rooms connected to one another in the same way that a single camera show often does have the characters moving from space to space instead of just the like flat you know three walls everything open to the audience yeah which is very interesting but ultimately from my point of view it's like nah nah this is like when that band you like experimented with like harmonicas on one album and it's like (laughs) nah go back to the basics you know it's like we want our multicam sitcoms you know locked down we don't need cameras gliding through like we're watching a you know paul thomas anderson movie or something but yeah it was just something i noticed so the resolution of this story is that it wasn't really drew's fault uh her kid's an arsonist, right? Right. So that's the last like second of the show, right? So the kid where they're they're all in the kitchen of this house. They're they're all living at Drew's house now. And they're in the kitchen and all of a sudden they start smelling smoke and they're like, What is that? What is that? Kind of like your dad was that day that you burned the new kids on the block cards. Yeah. And goes running, everybody goes running into the living room, and sure enough, there is like a piece of paper on fire in the center of the room, and Drew goes over and like stomps it out, and and everyone's looking at the kid going, what the hell? Like, what's going on? And he's got matches in his hand. Yes. And Mimi says, Gus, you know, what is, what, what is that? What are these? And he's like, oh, those are my fire setting matches. Yeah. He goes, these are mine. This is how I start fires. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's great. And then, of course, we get another wiring mention because Mimi goes, memorize this phrase. Or she goes, we'll play a game. If anybody asks how the fire started, you have to say faulty electrical wiring. That's right. right. Always the prime suspect. That's the prime suspect. And then the next episode that came right after this that may or may not have aired in order is them trying to, it's the whole insurance investigation and them trying to convince the insurance adjuster that all was well and it was just an accident and like the kid didn't set the fire yeah so this is the first time where we didn't get the bombed out charcoaly set yeah right so this one ultimately wasn't as tropey it's it's kind of like family matters in the sense that we're going to use a fire much like the function it serves in real life as sort of a pivot point for a major life change right so instead of having to have uh, characters come to a decision to do something. My house burned down. And now I have to live with Drew. Yep, exactly. And it allows us to do the thing that you're talking about, which is experiment with more of this single camera 
we're all in a house kind of set thing that they were going for in this last season. So while this one didn't have really the trope of the fire that we were kind of looking for, what it did have is the trope that we've sort of noticed over time and that we, you know, you kind of know as well is that shows get shittier as they go on. Yeah, look, like I said, season nine, you know, you're you're getting up there. And uh, yeah, even The Office was was kind of struggling at that point. But yeah, you know, what can we say? Well, we'll give you another chance, Drew. We'll we'll go back to season one or two. All right, moving on to Abbott Elementary. Season two, episode 15, Fire. Fire. So Abbott Elementary is a newer show. We haven't covered it on the podcast yet. Uh, I haven't ever seen it. What's, what's the story with this show? So I also am woefully uneducated on Abbott Elementary, but I have a reason. <laughs> I work at a school and I purposefully avoid workplace comedies that have to do with my specific work because I like to do something else when I come home. Now, Abbott Elementary is one of those ones that is, it's highly acclaimed. You know, the lead actress, we know her from SNL because she hosted SNL. She was also on Black Lady Sketch Show. This, by all, you know, rights is a really well-respected show that everybody loves. And from what I hear is that it's one of the ones that really gets school life as close as you can to accurate while still being a sitcom. And I have to say that my experience in watching the show today, that's true. It like I was like, oh my gosh, I know that teacher. Oh, I know that teacher. Oh, I really know that principal. So it didn't make me feel so much like I was at work like I thought it would. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I think to me, it was a little different than I expected because I also know it is really acclaimed. It's one of those, you know, it's there aren't that many new sitcoms that really kind of break through the consciousness, and this has. And yeah, I guess it seemed maybe a little more focused on sort of verisimilitude and less like ha ha funny than I expected it to be. But it was funny at times. Yeah, I guess it was just a, a, a unexpected sort of vibe to me, and I wasn't expecting it to be a straight-up mockumentary like The Office, where they're going to actually address the camera and have little talking heads. Right, sessions. okay, so I did know that. Like, I did know that the premise of the show is that they have this fake film crew filming a documentary at a, at a school, and that's the setup for the show. That's how they're getting everybody, you know, all the footage and everybody talking and, and doing things. So that's interesting that you would say that you didn't feel like it really kind of focused on the haha funny because maybe it is just that I work in that environment that there was so much about like there was so much reality to that that it was making me laugh. Well, that's the thing is there is a lot of reality as compared to like the office, say, where you have ostensibly it's a very down to earth grounded vibe, but there's stuff that happens in it and things that the characters do that are very silly and bordering on the absurd. And this, maybe it's just this particular episode like or maybe the whole... being obsessed with a fire truck? <laughs> yeah, I guess. There, I don't know. Something about it just, for me, seemed a little more down to earth or just, it just didn't, I don't know, it just didn't have that absurdist bent as much. As I, much. No, I, I would agree. I think that it is, but I think that that's okay. I think especially when it's first getting started... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, this is only season two. This is towards the beginning. Or no, I guess it's kind of midway through season two towards the end. It's 2.15. So maybe they just aren't going full whack 
like wackadoo yet. Sure, which is yeah, absolutely fine. They don't have to ever go full wackadoo. You don't don't be in any rush to jump the shark before you <laughs> need to. I think the other thing that was surprising to me is you don't get much of kids in this show. No, you know, this they're, is they're all about the adults. Yeah, the kids are like the scenery. This right. is very much This is not about, AP bio. Yeah, exactly. It's a behind the scenes teacher's lounge, principal's office kind of show. It's the hallway conversations that the adults are having in between classes and before and after school. Right. And so I think between all of that just being a little different than I expected and not knowing any of the characters and everything, it just, you know, it, it's a lot to sort of catch up with, I yes, think, when you absolutely. Watch Which is how I kind of felt. I mean, Goldberg's was a little different because it's more of like a normal family comedy and they're doing like a throwback thing to the 80s so it was easier to kind of drop in on but as you can tell we love old tv shows so we don't watch a lot of the new ones so anyway the setup for this show like we said documentary kind of a mockumentary thing happening within the elementary school and the show focuses on second grade teacher kinta brunson um her name in the show is janine and then there's a substitute teacher that wanted to be the principal but didn't get hired as the principal so he's a sub there now that's gregory there's another second grade teacher named Melissa and she's kind of a townie. She's got that really thick sort of Philadelphia kind of accent. It's great. It's it, like, I like just listening to her cause I'm still trying to figure that accent out. Yeah. And then you've and got, like you said, she's the silly one. Yes, at least she's in this, at le- in this episode. She's the kind of absurd one. And then you've got Cheryl Lee Ralph who plays, um, this very like established, well-respected kindergarten teacher, Barbara, And this episode really kind of revolves around her because she's the one that accidentally sets the fire. And then you have the principal who is like a whole mess. Like her name's Ava and she just like doesn't want to be there. She's totally checked out. She is always finding a reason to leave school. And that from from my time in public schools rang so true. I have known several principals that one that was at a school where I worked and one that was at a school down the street from the school where I worked, they were just literally never on campus. And they always had a, in quotes, meeting at the the, the head office. They never had meetings at the head office. Like the, the assistant principals were having to run the schools and the teachers were having to do double duty. Like we already don't have to do triple duty with everything that you have to handle as a teacher. Uh, like, so that one right away, I was like, Oh, I don't like this principle. <laughs> yeah. You definitely get the impression that she's, you know, alternately either a non-entity or an agent of chaos when she is around. Right. So the episode focuses on Barbara. It's funny how similar to when we talked about other tropes with community and, maybe 30 Rock, how the newer shows subvert the trope a little bit. And in this case, it's not as much of a total subversion, but it's like it's the smallest fire that we've had so far, the least amount of damage and the most investigation, right? It's going to be like basically the whole episode is given over to this fire inspector coming to investigate and this whole fire squad coming to investigate what is basically a fire on a table in a teacher's lounge because this character Barbara uh, lit a candle and her scarf blew over from the window and caught fire. Right. So she 
that was it. But because it's at a school, of course, and it was when school was in session. So all the kids had to like go out and do, you know, what they practice in the fire drills. So, you know, she kind of owns up to it right away. Like, oh, that was my candle. I lit my candle. So it wasn't an investigation in so much as to figure out what happened. But it was more an investigation of, you know, kind of why it happened. Right. Because you're not generally allowed to light candles at school. There's a couple characters that are brought in to this because you have the fire inspector himself. He's a very familiar comedian. I don't remember. Michael Malley. Okay, Michael Malley. You spot him in all kinds of things. So he's from the fire department and his job is to find out what caused the fire. But like we're saying, it's kind of an open and shut case. And then you have this counselor sent by the district or or somebody, and she's there, like you're getting at, to sort of deal with the more emotional or psychological or social aspects of of this. You know, is anybody upset? Does anybody need any help or counseling or whatever? And so, yeah, she's going to start drilling into the more emotional mystery of like, what's up with these teachers? Right. And so they're going to have a fire safety class after school for all the adults, like all the faculty and staff, because you know, you're not supposed to light candles. So they just want to, hey, remind everybody, these are the fire safety things we have to abide by when we're working in a, you know, school building. And Barbara doesn't want to go to this meeting. She's like, I know what I've worked here for a million years. I like, I don't need to go. Yeah. She's being weird about everything. And again, we're dropping into this show. We don't totally know her personality, but even we can tell that this is bizarre behavior. Like anytime anybody's asking her anything or talking to her, she just kind of has this attitude, like trying to end the conversation or trying to be like, oh, I'm totally fine. I'm totally fine. Like she just, it was just an accident. It's okay. Let's not talk about it anymore. Yeah. So she puts up resistance to everything, like first to attending this seminar. And, you know, when this counselor lady is just sort of asking for her reaction to the fire in general, she's not giving her anything except I'm totally fine. It's not worth talking about. And then when she gets to the seminar and this fire inspector guy is like, it's very simple. Fires of any kind are not allowed in school. No open flames, period. She's, she's first confused and then, you know, sort of in denial and then ultimately incensed by this idea of like, wait a minute, are you saying I cannot light a candle in this building? And she storms out of the room. And again, it's just like, mounting weirdness upon weirdness of like, why is she not like reacting normally to anything about this? Right. And her point, which is well made, by the way, when she gets mad in the fire safety lesson is that all of the crazy shenanigans that go on with all the different teachers at this school i.e. all the episodes before this that we haven't seen and the principal on this day, like all of that stuff, no one ever cares about. Nobody from the district is ever sent out to make sure the kids are okay about that. And nobody from the fire department has to give us a lesson on whatever. And all these people are totally unprofessional all the time. This woman very clearly is like the stalwart professional at this institution who has put up with all these people's shit for 
years on years on years and is just trying to do what's right for these kids. Like, I know this teacher. She, I know many of these teachers. They have watched... They have watched administrators come and go. They've watched initiatives come and go. They're over it. They know how kids learn. They know how to teach their grade. They know how to make sure that, in this case, these kindergartners, these five-year-olds that come into the building, know how to read by the time they leave and are six years old and are going into first grade. They know how to do their job, and they're not trying to put up with any of this bullshit. And she's saying, seriously, I lit a prayer candle in the teacher's lounge and you're telling me that now we have to have this whole policy of no open flame anywhere in the school and nobody else ever gets taken to task for their ridiculous child harming errors that happen multiple times a day like her anger is well justified and also it's coming from a different place yeah which we'll find out about and yeah i agree with the part of like well I, you know, she's such a good employee in general. She, you know, she shouldn't have to answer for that when she does everything else right. But from my experience, it smacked a little bit of that thing of the the two wrongs make a right argument. The thing of like, you know, Johnny, why did you punch her? Well, he punched her. You know, why are you writing on the wall? Well, that kid did it. You know, that thing of like, you know, and adults do it too. Oh, absolutely. All the time. My answer to why. I did my thing is to point out something wrong that somebody else did. And you know. bless you for that, because that is exactly the way that all people should handle situations. Well, it's it's whataboutism. That's yeah. that's the name for it now in politics. You know, what about what he did? What about her emails? You know, but yeah. anyway. Yeah, so what we ultimately find out is that she had lit this prayer candle because her husband had this big health scare, right? Big health scare. And as she's lighting it, you know, waiting, you know, to say a prayer for her husband who was waiting on test results about his prostate, the phone rings, her phone rings, and she steps away from the table and her shawl and the candle to take the phone call to find out that her husband's test results are fine and he's going to be okay and the there are some elevated levels that they're going to monitor but he doesn't have prostate cancer and that was the thing that's why she stepped away and so the the trauma counselor who has come out to the school ostensibly to check on the kids to make sure everybody's right. okay and didn't get too scared from a, a you know a fire drill that wasn't a drill really kind of like you said it doesn't she does she's not focusing too much on the kids she notices sort of right away that it's the adults and in particular this one adult who is having a hard time and look if you're the type of person who is a consummate professional and you make a mistake like this and you're already dealing with other stressors like this woman was what this episode is ultimately about is taking care of your own mental health and how that is okay. Because in this episode and in this instance for Barbara, this candle snafu where the shawl caught on fire because she stepped away to take a personal phone call while at work. By the way, teachers, we are, we like, I think I can speak for a lot of us when I say there is 
such guilt and anxiety about even having our phones at work. Like you, we don't get to go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? And so the fact that she is this consummate professional, she knows and she thinks of herself, her whole identity is like she's better than the rest of these idiot teachers in the building because she knows what to do with these kids, that she makes a mistake like this that upends everybody's day. And she's dealing with all the stress at home. And she was on a personal phone call. All of that, it just, it snaps. And so the trauma counselor is like, you can take a day off. And she's like, I never take a day off. And we have this really real speech where she's talking to the trauma counselor, explaining that, you know, she's taken a day off when she was sick, but she's never taken a day off for any reason. Right. Well, she says specifically, she says a few circumstances. She says, but I would never take a day off for no reason is her words. And the counselor says to her, oh, it's okay to take it. Like she uses certain phrases like because you need it or because you want to or whatever. And then she says in a talking head to us, the audience, what it is is a mental health day, but she would never accept that terminology. Right. And that is accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, like Cheryl Lee Ralph is playing a woman of a certain generation who is not okay with taking right. what is Take called- your mental health days and your participation trophies and shove them up your ass. <laughs> that generation. Yeah, I mean- so, so wouldn't necessarily be comfortable and is fine if other people need that, but would never do that for right. themselves, right? And so it was this whole moment of an entire system kind of coming together to help a person who needed it. Yeah. And she took the mental health day. The next day she wasn't at school. And what was so fascinating, and this is now why I want to go back and watch some of the earlier episodes, right? Because there is this dynamic of, the guy who plays Gregory and Kinta Brunton's character, Janine, as being like the, the, the rocks that sort of hold this school together. Mm-hmm. And they're like the younger ones and the ones that are, have all this energy and all the great ideas. And, you know, Gregory wants to be a principal. And, you know, Kinta Brunson's just like out there for the kids. And she really looks up to Cheryl Lee Ralph's character and like wants to be her one day, you know. And and so we have there's this dynamic of like those two being the ones that kind of hold the school together and get things done and do it in the principal's absence, whereas Cheryl Lee Ralph's character is just kind of focused on her kids, focused on getting done what she needs to get done. She has a job. She does it. Yeah, kind of keeps her head down. And keeps her head down, right? And doesn't put up with any of this nonsense. But in this episode, it was like the two of them, Janine and Gregory, were out of their depth in recognizing what the adults in the building needed. And that is what an administrator does. And that, to me, really spoke to, and I, you know, again, this is so personal. It's one of the reasons that I can't watch shows like this because it's just like reliving work life um, when I'm at home. But that's why, that's why a good principal is important. That's why good administration and good management is so important. Because yes, in a school building, the kids come first, 100%. And we love teachers. We want teachers who put those kids first, put their heads down, do what they need to do and get it done for the kids, right? But somebody's got to look out for them. Yeah, no, I think that's well said. From my point of view, you know, I empathized with this idea of like, she 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 had to come to terms with her limitations, you know, because like you said, she's this consummate professional. And it's something that I deal with all the time where it's like, don't worry about what's going on with my personal life or my bullshit. I will make the deadline, I whatever. And it's uh, it just 
kills you when you realize the exact realization that she made where she goes like, I was under stress. I was dealing with things. It directly resulted in a problem at work or a danger or whatever. And it's like that same thing that we all have to recognize sometimes of like, I thought I could handle this and it would be seamless and invisible to the people that I work with. And it turns out that there actually is a crack in the armor and there were consequences, however insignificant to my being so stressed. Yeah. Absolutely. And so we get, you know, she takes the she takes the day off and Janine and Gregory are are just shocked and surprised. And who knows if in the next episode they revisit that and kind of tend to learn their lesson on their own journey or if we go back and refocus on the kids. But either way, I thought it was a really good they did a really good job because they are focused on the adults in the building at telling a teacher story. Yeah. So I think I would kind of stick with my original observation that I liked it, but it was just a little more on the sort of grounded, down-to-earth, like, human stuff uh, side of things. And, you know, just a little bit less, like, wacky and funny than I would have thought. So in terms of looking back on these fire episodes... The thing that is striking me now about this Abbott Elementary relative to all the others, you know, we talk about how in general TV has gotten much more serialized and less episodic. But this is the one where this is just like the fire episode and we move on and they're probably not still dealing with the fire in season two, episode 16. All of these other ones Drew Carey, Family Matters, Webster, these fires facilitated some sort of major change in the circumstance of the show. Leroy's became Rachel's and they got all of that stuff. With Webster, they ultimately moved to a different house and sort of restarted in that way. You know, Drew Carey, like we talked about, it reconfigured the whole situation. So now Mimi has to live with Drew. So I'm kind of thinking like, yeah, I don't know if the motives are if we can identify like a single motive for doing the fire trope other than the motive being like with the older shows anyway in the writer's room we want to do new things with our set (laughs) we need to change everything and even if we say okay that's it that's the trope when when you want to switch it up you have a fire abbott elementary kind of upends that because in that one it really is just just kind of a plot point to sort of catalyze this this emotional discovery. Yeah, or and and who knows? Because like we said, we don't know the show very well. Maybe uh, this is a big turning point in terms of Cheryl Lee Ralph's character going forward. Yeah, I would have to say. I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I have a feeling this is going to be unanimous. I mean, the the MVP is Webster oh, by 100%. a country mile. Right? I, I knew that even before going in. Like like I said, my entire life uh, uh, since I was four years old and watched this episode, I would talk about it as being one of these great episodes of television that I remembered. And like, oh, you know, you sit around at school lunch table and everybody's talking about oh, da, 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 and this and that. And da, da. Do you remember that web? episode where he like got a chemistry kit and set fire to his closet oh man i remember like not even remembering now so many years later as to why it stuck with me so much having gone through that emotional journey again i re-realize why that stuck with me so much and 
good on them. Like, what a great family conversation starter. I can just imagine my mom holding my infant brother who was born the previous week, literally born 10 days before this episode came yeah. out. And like, yeah, they timed it like that on tell- purpose. Yeah, they I totally think. did. And telling me all about why it was important not to uh, play with matches. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, in terms of what happens plot-wise, the first three shows all have that like they all have people losing everything in a fire but webster is the only one that actually like goes for the emotional impact of what that would mean and yeah as much as it is very much like a dopey 80s sitcom and i roll my eyes especially at ma'am's you know fire on the oily rags in the elevator shaft origin (laughs) story uh it it's still it it pulls it off it yeah. really it it works it really did the glassy-eyed soot-faced soot-faced scene on the couch where they're all covered by what looks like one giant blue blanket but then webster comes out from under it and you see that it's two yeah. they like i could have stared into ma'am's eyes all day long like she was so just catatonic it was great they yeah. did a great job yeah no we've really uh We've been through the we've been through the flames of hell on this one. We've been through the inferno. So much for accidental fire episodes. What are we talking about next week? Next week, we're getting spooky. We're watching episodes that have séances and they come from years that end in 3. We're going to start with 1983, Laverne and Shirley, season 8, episode 17, The Ghost Story. 1993, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Season 4, Episode 7, Hex and the Single Guy. 2003, Reba, Season 3, Episode 7, The Ghost and Mrs. Hart. And finally, 2013, The Middle, Season 5, Episode 5, Halloween 4, The Ghost Story. Yep, that will be in honor of Halloween a week or so early. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to the sitcom study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The sitcom study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. Dog.